Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Three decades is a long time to serve the public. And so late last month, Denise Merrill announced she will leave office at the end of her term after 12 years as Connecticut's Secretary of the State. Now, before this position, she was a longtime state legislator and former House Majority Leader. Today, where we live, we talk with Merrill about her decision. She's been the top state elections official in Connecticut during an eventful period in U.S. elections, including Russian interference and continued mistrust in the democratic process by some Americans, fueled by a former president who continues to falsely claim that the 2020 election was, quote, rigged. Coming up, we talk with New York Times politics reporter Nick Corisaniti about the impact of a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling and continuing efforts by Republican-led states to pass more restrictive voting laws. What questions do you have about election issues in Connecticut and nationwide? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you very much. Great to be back. <laughs> now, I, I know just a couple weeks ago you called a press conference and announced that you will you'll be stepping down at the end of your term. Tell us why. Well, I think sometimes, uh, you know, as you said, thirty years is enough, and I think it's time to let some others uh, have a chance, specifically younger people. Uh, people who really care about these issues and times are changing and I think it's uh, time to have them step up and uh, take a crack at it. I think it's it's a very, very important issue right now, the voting part, but this office involves a lot more than voting. I mean, there are other pieces to the office of the Secretary of the State um, and I feel like I've accomplished a lot. Uh, so, I, you know, it seems like the right time in my life. It seems like a right, the right time in the state's life, uh, if you will. Had you been talking about this for a while with your family? How did they react? Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, my children now are grown and I have six grandchildren. And so, again, you know, I'd like to spend some more time with them, but they are they've been part of this all along and they were not surprised. You know, they I think they're very supportive. They want to see me more. But they also it's kind of a mixed blessing in a way um, because they know that I, I love this job. I have loved my career most of it, almost every minute of it, actually. Uh, but, you know, they also understand that I've done a lot uh, and they, wa- they want me to continue to work on things, but maybe in a different way. And we'll be talking more about what you hope to be doing after you step down. But you know, I have to ask, there's been a lot of threats against officials who oversee elections across our country, especially since the last presidential election. Did you receive any threats beyond the usual? Did that encourage you to maybe think, maybe this is time for me uh, to try something else? <laughs> 
Well, to be honest, yes, of course I had some threatening emails, but honestly in Connecticut, nothing like what's going on in some of these other states like Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, where election officials have literally been threatened uh, with their lives and have had people shooting guns at their houses and things like that. Uh, Connecticut, I think we're not in the same place a lot of these other states are. You know, that's our, we have a pretty civilized politics here in Connecticut. And I'd like to think that wouldn't be the case here. I don't think it has been. Uh, certainly people were upset during the last election, but not to that level. And so I like to think also that I've been in office long enough that people tend to trust me. And uh, also the fact is that Connecticut's elections are so local. Uh, they are administered by local officials, not by my office. And so I think a lot of people are uh, informed about that. They know that and they tend to uh, focus their frustrations elsewhere. <laughs> when you look back at your almost 12 years in this position, a lot has changed. When you think about the job that you took on, uh, you know, almost 12 years ago and now, can you talk about how the job has changed? Oh, it's amazing. I never could have predicted in 2010 when I took over this office uh, that all these uh, changes would be suggested, would actually occur. Every day something new happens, mostly in other states, but it does affect us because some of these changes have been suggested in Connecticut as well. Uh, but, you know, in Connecticut, honestly, we've made progress on access to voting. You know, the, the ideal we have all had, if we were to achieve it, would be easy access to voting for every single citizen. And I think we have made progress on that. But it, it, nothing was online in 2010. <laughs> when you think about it, you couldn't register to vote online. You couldn't uh, do anything of business registrations, which is the other part of this office. Everything was still on paper. Uh, you still had to come in person to file for or, or do it by phone. Uh, so a lot has changed. The online presence, I just can't overstate how much that has changed in every aspect of this office. What about the, the the equipment that we use today? Uh, is it is it correct when I say that those optical scan machines are they've been around for some time? And what this means uh, for our, our next few years of voting uh, in terms of their reliability? You're absolutely right. That is, I would say, one unfinished piece of business for this office. Uh, we are going to have to replace those machines. They are over 20 years old now. I think they were purchased in, what, 2003, I think, after the famous uh, hanging Chad incident of the election of 2000. Uh, some people still think of them as the, quote, new machines because they remember the old lever machines, which were actually uh, changed due to federal legislation. And so now these are now quite elderly by uh, machine age, but they are just scanners. They are not they are not electronic. They don't do anything over the internet. We still vote on paper ballots. And some of that's a good thing, but they are you know, starting to wear out. We can't get parts for them anymore. And so in the next few years, we'll probably have to replace them, but they've done a great job for us. Will there be any issues in, in replacing that particular type of equipment, Secretary Merrill? Oh, there's lots of issues nationally, I'm sure, because people's suspicions are just uh, so overwrought right now that it's difficult to do anything in elections that changes anything. Uh, in other states, uh, the legislatures have taken the authority away from some of the election officials and tried to you know, go out to get new vendors for machines because they're afraid that some there was even a story that a Venezuelan dictator somehow had something to do with the existing machines that we have. 
so there's all kinds of crazy stories out on the internet in social media, and that is making it very difficult for us to get anything done in elections that changes anything. And this will be no exception. It'll have to have a lot of citizen involvement uh, and a lot of transparency if we go out to bid to get new election scanners. Is there a specific timeline or deadline where the state would need to purchase these new machines? No, I, my suggestion is in the next two or three years, uh, we're going to start now and thinking about it because, um, you know, at some point, these scanners, we won't have extra spare parts anymore. Uh, they will start having to be replaced and we won't have the capacity to replace them. So it hasn't happened yet. Uh, we're, we're still doing fine and we do have some extras uh, here at the state and also in some towns. So, so far, so good, but uh, we certainly need to be ready for that eventuality. And is this something that Connecticut will have to pay for completely? And how expensive are we talking? Well, it's very expensive. Uh, The previous ones were purchased by the federal government, and that was the last time that the federal government put significant money into elections. Elections is underfunded at every level. And it's interesting because it's one of the core functions of government. But uh, yes, either the state is going to have to come up with it, and I wouldn't even want to have how much that will cost, but it will be significant. And we were hoping uh, that some portion of the uh, act that's before Congress right now does contain funding for that sort of thing. I mean, a, a a variety of different election functions would be funded, but it doesn't look like that's moving forward at the moment. So uh, the federal government very much needs to step in here and provide the funding to the states so that we can purchase this new equipment. Mm-hmm. You're hearing Secretary of the State Denise Merrill here on Where We Live as we talk about our, first her decision that she'll be leaving her office uh, at the end of her term. So she still has a few months uh, in her position and we wanted to find out more about why she's leaving and some of the, the things that she's proud about as well as some of the issues that she sees before uh, Connecticut and nationally. You can join us if you have a question for her, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So this uh, particular issue, uh, purchasing uh, new scam machines, a headache for a new uh, Secretary of the State potentially down the road. Have you been hearing from a lot of Democrats who are interested in your job? Oh, yes. Uh, and and obviously, I cannot take a position on any of that. But yes, there will be a lot of people that would like to do this job. Uh, I tell them all, just go out there and try to get the support. Uh, it is a different job than it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago now. Uh, it, it, it is extremely important. And the most important factor right now, I think, is that a secretary maintain the trust of the public. Because right now, the biggest issue facing us is the distrust the public has in elections. I think completely unfounded, but it is to be dealt with. And I think the biggest issue we will have and that the next secretary will have will be maintaining, I think in Connecticut, we do better than most states. I think most people in Connecticut do think our elections are well run and well administered. I I don't know if that's because, you know, I'd like to think my job has had something to do with it, but it's also that it is very local, that people know that that there are registrars and clerks in their town. Uh, Connecticut, we tend to vote in person more than most states, and it seems to be kind of a tradition here, even during COVID, where we tried to make it possible for everyone who needed to vote from home would be able to do it. And even then, only 35%, I think it was, of citizens voted uh, 
by mail. So, you know, I think um, we do better than most, but that's going to be critical to maintain that trust here in Connecticut. When you look back at your three terms as Secretary of the State, you know, what would you say was your biggest mistake? Oh, that's interesting. I think my biggest mistake was not trying to do more to get the uh, ballot measures passed in 2014. Um, in 2014, we managed to get the two constitutional amendments, which I guess we're going to talk about later, uh, that would have enabled us to do early voting, in other words, more days of voting, and also uh, easier access to absentee ballots. That measure was on the ballot in 2014, and I felt that my job was to just sort of step aside and let sort of democracy take its process. I didn't realize it really needed more understanding from the public, I think, and maybe its time hadn't come. But in any event, it did not pass, and I, and I feel badly about that because now we're having to start from scratch and do it all over again. I think this time it's going to pass handily. So let's talk about that. So in a couple of years, a question before voters for early voting. And so is that question, is it easy to understand? And do you think there's been enough attention on the fact that a lot of people want to have this option in our state? I hope so. I think this time it's much more front and center. I mean, you can't go a day without hearing about some form of voting restriction being uh, attempted at least to be put in place in other states. Uh, you know, there's been so much attention during COVID to the uh, efficacy of using uh, absentee ballots, for example, here in Connecticut. You know, it was a big change. But now that we've experienced the change, I think voters are much more familiar with the process. They know a lot more about it. You know, no one ever asked much about all this before. No, people in Connecticut and elsewhere just kind of went to vote and they trusted that it worked. And uh, Americans had almost a touching faith in their elections. And now that, that it's much more front and center than it was, much more questioned. Um, and so I think it's going to get a lot more attention. And generally, uh, it'll be on the, the early voting measure will be on the ballot in 2022. And I think it's going to pass uh, quite easily, honestly, because people have more experience with it now. And so the question of early voting, if it were to pass, it's the legislature who then decides exactly how early someone could vote, Secretary Merrill? Yes, how many days or even how it's done. Uh, certainly, we'd have to change some procedures to make that uh, possible. But, you know, that, that'll all be dealt with after it's possible to have it happen. You know, we had this debate uh, last year about, well, why can't we say exactly how many days? And then as soon as you put in, let's say we agree, well, we'll have five days of early voting, uh, maybe the weekend before or something like that. There's lots of different, you know, there's like 40 states that are already doing this. So there's lots of different ways you can do it. Uh, but then the minute you do that, someone says, well, we can't possibly do it on a Sunday because the town halls aren't open and that would be a big expense. You know, so rather than go through that debate before it even passes, we decided, well, we'll just put it on the ballot and say, should Connecticut have more days of voting, period. And it'll be very easy to understand for the voters. And so if it were to pass in 2022, so how soon would that actually be implemented? as soon as the General Assembly could pass implementing legislation, and that would be, you know, that first session. Mm -hmm. So assuming it passes in the November of 2022, the legislature could act as early as the following session, starting in February, March, April. And if something passes, it would be in place for the municipal election of 2023. 
Again, you can join us if you have a question about elections uh, moving forward uh, with uh, our Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill, who will be in office uh, through the end of her term. She's got about 18 months to go, Secretary Merrill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I keep reminding people of that because I know my announcement was very early. And I did that on purpose because I want to make sure that others have a chance to form uh, you know, form campaigns, go out to the public, make their case. Uh, I didn't have that, actually. I, if you go back to 2010, uh, well, it was actually uh, late in 2009, when U.S. Senator Chris Dodd uh, announced that he was not going to be running. Well, that caused almost like a house of cards, and everyone started shifting positions. Uh, I was majority leader at the time and widely believed to be the next Speaker of the House, but I had always wanted this job. I, I started out at the Secretary of State's office many years ago, and I always did um, projects on civic education. That's really my first uh, interest in all this, is getting citizens involved in government, getting them to understand what government does and why. And so uh, when this came up, I just jumped at it, uh, much to the chagrin of some <laughs> who were sort of counting on me uh, being around because I was still only the second woman who had ever been in leadership in the House. And so that was sort of a big deal. And it's unfortunate, frankly, that but since then, there has not been another woman in leadership in the House since that time. You can join us with your question for Secretary Merrill, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, earlier I asked you what you felt was your biggest mistake in your uh, three three terms as Secretary of the State. Let's talk about um, pandemic voting. Obviously, we're not completely out of uh, COVID just yet. Uh, there was a lot of uh, collaboration that needed to happen uh, between registrars and town clerks and, of course, uh, getting guidance from the state. Could that have been smoother? What would have made this uh, situation, this workload for, for so many, um, maybe a little less uh, stressful not only for voters, but for the people, you know, looking through uh, and getting these uh, ballots out to people. I honestly don't think there's any more we could have done. I felt like in a way it was like uh, building an airplane when you're trying to fly it. We were doing everything as quickly as we could and we had to completely transform our system because the bottom line was, and the governor and I talked about this numerous times over this period, we never wanted anyone to have to choose between their health and their vote. That was the guiding principle. And, and it, it involved a lot of change for a, a lot of people. And it wasn't exactly smooth, but you know what? We did a great job in the end. Um, everything came together. It was certainly enormously helped by the federal funding we got. We were able to send out millions of dollars to the town, towns and they hired extra help. Uh, we had to make some changes to the legislation to, in order to allow them to open ballots differently and so forth. But in the end, uh, and the legislature helped, they ratified all these things. So honestly, I feel like 2020 was one of our most successful elections in spite of all that. Uh, more people registered to vote than any time in the history of the state and more people turned out and a higher percentage of people turned out to vote and we managed it all. So I, I'm very proud of our performance in 2020, actually. There was a critique that when uh, your office sent out the absentee ballot applications, uh, some of those mailings could not be delivered. And I think about 8% of the voting records were not accurate. And so now does that help uh, clean up the voting records, uh, Secretary Merrill? Any lessons learned from that? 
Oh, it absolutely does. In fact, there's always going to be inaccuracies on any list because it's a moment in time. And, you know, there's a great deal of mobility. People move and they don't tell you when they move. Uh, people die out of state and we don't find out about it. You know, so there are a lot of moving parts. And of course, these lists are all um, developed at the local level. Local registrars are the only ones that can put names on or off the list. Uh, so when we mailed those applications out, and I still feel strongly that was the right thing to do because so many people in Connecticut didn't realize how to, how to process an absentee ballot. It's pretty complicated because there are lots and lots of checks and balances, which people began to understand when they tried to send these applications back. But uh, yes, it will help us clean up the lists. We took all those uh, the one, returned ones and sent them to the towns. Those will be taken off the list. But I would say, you know, that's actually a very small number of, uh, of inaccurate names on the list comparatively. We only sent it to active voters. We're very, very careful before we take anyone's name off a voter list. We have to have absolute firsthand information about that. And that's because it's everyone's right to vote. It's a big deal to take someone's name off a list because that may mean they won't get to vote. So uh, given all those restraints, um, you know, I think it'll be a better list. Actually, our lists are better now than they ever have been in the past uh, because of all this. So that's a good thing. If you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue speaking with Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill after the break. And take your questions, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill. If you have a question, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So we have some elections coming up this fall. Um, our Connecticut Public's Ali Oshinsky wanted to know, Secretary Merrill, you know, how will the use of absentee ballots and drop boxes rather be different from uh, the years prior to COVID? Yes, uh, actually, as a result of some legislation that just passed, 
those ballot boxes, which were very popular in 2020, and they were a first time uh, a fixture for our state, uh, they will be back uh, in a permanent way so that people who are voting by absentee ballot will be able to drop those ballots in these drop boxes uh, for the municipal as well as future elections. So that was a big, that was a big change and a very positive one, I think. Uh, and, and aside from that, you know, we're still uh, in a COVID situation and we still will be able to vote by absentee ballot uh, due to those exceptions for if you feel that you're risking your health uh, by uh, or have an illness and so forth. Those were the exceptions we had for uh, COVID only if we're still in an emergency situation though. So. Uh, I don't know how that will be affected by the extension of the uh, emergency powers of the governor, but I don't think it will be because the legislature actually ratified some of that as well. So I would expect uh, the municipal election will be very much like the 2020 election. Uh, there'll be the ballot boxes and you will be able to get access to absentee ballots. Um, after that though, uh, we need to pass a constitutional amendment to enable everyone to use an absentee ballot should they choose to, because we would need to take the restrictions out of our state constitution. So going forward, those restrictions will still be in place. So that question will be before voters potentially in 2024, and then will legislature have to approve it yet again? Again? Oh, yes, they will have to approve it before it goes on the ballot uh, in a second legislature, which is why we have to wait until 2024 in order to put it on the ballot. Because any change you make to the state constitution, the entire state, all voters get to vote on whether they want to do these things. And so that will have to wait until 2024. Uh, one more question on absentee ballots before we uh, hit some callers with their questions. Uh, you know, If absentee ballots become a bigger fixture in Connecticut elections, do you think that municipalities should create an extra office within the town clerk's office to handle this work, Secretary Merrill? We'll have to sort some of that out. Uh, it may mean a change in some of our processes, which are, it's very, very time consuming to process each absentee ballot. And that's because we have so many checks and balances. I don't know if anyone filed an absentee ballot in the 2020 election, but you'll know there are several envelopes involved. You have to sign in different places. It all has to be confirmed by, uh, by the uh, clerks. Uh, so some of that is going to have to be looked at for sure, because we could not, it's very cumbersome. And so I'm sure the clerks will argue that they will need help on that front. Or, you know, right now we have clerks and registrars of voters involved. There may be some shift in those duties to make it more possible. And, you know, I mean, we still do everything in 169 towns, many of them very small. So it may mean that we will have to come up with some more regional processes. You know, we have ballot uh, sort of openers. There are these big mail opening machines that they use in the post office. Uh, Many of them are manufactured by Pitney Bowes. We may have to go to some more uh, efficiencies that way as well. Mm. And how would a regional process work uh, when we have such a decentralized process now? I'm just curious what the legislature's role and your office role would be in that. Oh, that would all have to be done uh, by, legis by the legislature. They would have to come up with a process that would make it easier on the towns to be able to process if there are a lot of absentee ballots. I'm still not convinced that that many people 
will file absentee ballots if they, even if they can. I really do think a lot of people still enjoy going to the polls. Even during COVID, 35% is not that many. I was expecting more, quite frankly. Uh, but um, that would all have to be sorted out once we know exactly how it's all going to work and if we're going to be able to do it at all. And that's years in the future. So I think already we're starting to talk about what some of those changes would look like. And I think preparation would be key. Let's take some calls. You can ask a question of Secretary of the State Denise Merrill at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Kathy's calling in from New Milford. Kathy, go ahead with your question. Hi. Um, I just wondered if, in Ms. Merrill's um, opinion, when we do change uh, voting, you know, the voting machines, if she thought we should go to something that would be able to be accessed online, not in a nefarious way, but... You know, that's always a, a um, you know, based on all the ransomware hacking and all, that's a consideration, certainly. Uh, yes, thanks for the question. And uh, you're absolutely right. I'm very uh, suspicious of online voting for exactly those reasons. I personally, I would not recommend it at this point. You know, maybe sometime in the future, we're going to be able to do things like as they do cryptocurrency, for example, maybe there'll be these wonderful ways of encrypting things so they can't be hacked. But right now with all that I've seen in cybersecurity, and I, I forgot to mention during my term, uh, we've had to create uh, cybersecurity protections for every town in the state. Uh, I've been on a national cybersecurity panel. And let me tell you, those threats are real. So no, at this point, I would not recommend online voting. In fact, I'm very happy with the paper ballots. I wouldn't even go to any kind of electronic uh, recording of votes. Eunice is calling in from Derby. Eunice, what's your question? Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Secretary Merrill for her service. I know she has been our representative um, in Hartford for many years, and I appreciate her. Um, my question is this. Um, I have to move out of state. What are the residency requirements uh, to vote in Connecticut once I've moved, or can't I? Uh, thanks for the question, and thank you very much for your compliments. Um, once you move, you are no longer uh, able to vote uh, only where you moved. So you would have to re-register in that if it's out of state you would have to re-register. And I would recommend doing it pretty immediately. Uh, and then it is not automatic though, that you come off the voter rolls here. And this is where we get into the complication of people saying, oh, the rolls are so inaccurate. Unless you actually call and say, oh, I'm moving, take me off the list. Uh, you stay on that list as an inactive voter and then finally drop off. But no, you should not vote in Connecticut if you have moved. Do we have enough election workers, Secretary Merrill, when we think about you know, new equipment down the road, having to train people, all the volunteers you were asking for during uh, the pandemic when it was really bad? I mean, how do we uh, improve the amount of people that are working and helping residents with the vote? You know, that was one of the most gratifying things in 2020. We had 10,000 people register to be volunteers at the polls. I mean, what it says to me is that people care deeply about elections in America. I think that's wonderful. And, and a lot of them were used. Uh, training and organization of election day and all the pertinences is all done by local officials 
the registrars of voters are in charge of election day. And there are two of them, one from each of the major parties, and they hire people. Most of them are paid some small amount, but yet one of the great progresses I think we've made in the last 10 years is we now, registrars are certified and trained and we have online training videos for things like training poll workers. And so that's all their job. I do think, as I've said before, that at the local level, uh, elections are somewhat underfunded too. Depends on the town. You know, some of the small towns, people only come in maybe once a week to do the lists. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to manage, but I still think it's important that there's a, a local component. Uh, we're gonna have to look at that over the next few years. And like I say, if the legislature wants to go to some more, you know, uh, regional mail opening or whatever it is, uh, it's gonna be a balance as usual between cost and efficiency. Uh, and so that bridge will have to be crossed at that point. John's Kleinen from Woodstock. John, what's your question for Secretary of the State Merrill? Hi, my uh, question is regarding ballot um, access for petitioning candidates. Given that we are still in somewhat of a high risk, um, or some of us are in high risk groups, and going out and getting signatures may be a challenge, may be risky. I'm wondering if there's any kind of relief for petitioning candidates and the uh, the number of uh, signatures are, that are needed to get on a local ballot. Yes, there was a great discussion about that, John, during the uh, pandemic, you know, the worst of the pandemic, uh, while people were trying to gather signatures for various purposes. And uh, there was no really permanent legislation passed in order to give you relief on that front. Uh, a lot of people were concerned because you almost have to go door to door and and people were being told not to do that. So I think it's alleviated somewhat now, but as far as I know, there have been no changes in those processes that were uh, passed in the last legislative session. I'll take one more call. Uh, Sherry's calling in from Danbury. Sherry, go ahead. Well, first I just wanted to say thank you. And I don't think you should underestimate your personal um, power in the sense that our elections went smoothly because people trust you. They trust you personally. And I'd just like to say I hope that you continue to weigh in publicly because I think your opinion will be very influential in whoever has the job next and certainly with the public. Well, thank you very much. And I, I like to think that's the case. And sometimes longevity helps. Uh, I've been around a long time. Um, and I will. I certainly will be still present in the public forum in one way or another and hope to have some role. I have to tell you, my interest is really in uh, gravitating towards civic education again. Uh, that's where I started my career. I did it mostly with K-12, with students. My proudest uh, achievement probably is the legislation I passed requiring a course in civics before you graduate from high school. Uh, and that's way back in, I think, 2003. Um, but, you know, I think right now the thing I am most concerned about is the amount of uh, misinformation that people have about not only elections, but about our entire government. And I think it's been very destructive in the last couple of years, and I hope to make some difference. You know, there are some bills in Congress. Uh, we now have a new Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, who is from Connecticut. And hopefully we can make some progress on just giving people more of the right information. That's the only thing I can think of to do is to just keep telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, as I said before, you know, people never ask many questions about the process of elections. 
they always just sort of trusted that it was going on the right way. And I think by and large, they were right. Uh, so that's all I can think of to do. And I hope to make some difference in that in that community. Well, coming up, we're going to be speaking with a New York Times reporter about this latest Supreme Court ruling and also efforts by some Republican states to make voting more restrictive. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this uh, court ruling and and what you see will be the impact on uh, voting rights across our country, Secretary Merrill. Yes, and I'm so glad you're having someone on who really knows the ins and outs of the actual case. Uh, for me, it was just another volley, a, another nail in the coffin, if you will, of, of voting rights, because the Voting Rights Act, uh, traditionally, we were most concerned about sections four and five earlier and the incursions that were made on that. But the, the whole purpose of the Voting Rights Act, which I think was one of the seminal pieces of, of civil rights legislation in the country um, was to prevent discrimination, was to prevent uh, the passage of laws that would, would um, discriminate against either certain groups or, or everyone. And um, it was discouraging to say the least to see them really uh, take away those protections from section two now, which was uh, the way that people could bring lawsuits uh, based on discriminatory practices. And this one happened to be in Arizona and it happened to be mostly about Native Americans, I believe. But, um, you know, I look forward to that discussion. But I'll tell you, I have colleagues, uh, for example, Katie Hobbs in Arizona, the Secretary of State there, and Jocelyn Benson, uh, my friend in Michigan. And what they're seeing in those states where the legislature is stepping in and passing laws that are clearly discriminatory and in some cases uh even in republican states where they have republican secretaries of state as in nevada and louisiana and georgia where they're attacking the republican secretaries for uh for certifying the election and i just i never thought i'd see this in this country uh the hallmark of america has been that we trust the elections and we go forward in a democratic way you know, and accept the results. That's the only thing that makes any difference between us and every other country who also, the, lots of countries have elections. Uh, not all of them abide by the results or allow any kind of true contest. Uh, so this has been shocking to me and many, many millions of others, I'm sure. Uh, but this last case with the voting rights issues uh, was very discouraging because it's one more step in the direction of saying, you know, the impact doesn't matter. The discriminatory impact of some of these laws doesn't matter. You can do them anyway. And I think it will just empower state legislatures to go even further than they're going now. Denise Merrill, again, as Connecticut Secretary of the State, she'll be in office through the end of her term and then uh, working, as she mentioned, uh, to bolster civic education. So we'll be talking with you again. We thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Lucy. Great to be back. This is where we live. Coming up, again, we're going to talk about voting issues nationally. New York Times politics reporter Nick Corasaniti will be joining us, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a lot happening around voting nationwide, including an important U.S. Supreme Court decision and efforts by Republicans in some states to put more restrictive voting rules in place. Joining us now with more is Nick Corasaniti. He's a New York Times politics reporter. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we just touched on this U.S. Supreme Court ruling with our Secretary of the State, uh, Denise Merrill. In a nutshell, what does this ruling mean? Well, what this ruling does is essentially make it harder for any states uh, or outside groups that are challenging new voting laws that have been passed uh, by state legislatures um, by challenging them in the courts. Ever since the uh, Supreme Court kind of hollowed out the Voting Rights Act of uh, Section 5, um, the only kind of recourse for um, civil rights groups and voting rights groups to challenge restrictive voting laws has, has been through the courts. And um, Section 2, which was the last one that had you know, kind of been uh, left to stand, you know, this was the first time we've seen a Section 2 case regarding voter, um, voter intent. Previously, it had been used kind of for redistricting more. Um, and so what this did is it set, you know, pretty specific guideposts. Um, I think Justice Alito laid out five guideposts that will make it harder for civil rights groups and voting rights groups to win court cases challenging restrictive voting laws. And so for a challenge to move forward, they have to prove discriminatory intent, not just discriminatory effect or impact, as we heard from Secretary Merrill. And so who would this disproportionately impact uh, when we look at some of these states that are trying to put these uh, stricter rules in place, Nick? Well, I mean, it will clearly impact um, communities of color and groups that have been historically disenfranchised. Um, if we were to look at the current landscape right now of states that have brought restrictive voting laws. Um, we can use Georgia as an example because, you know, the Department of Justice brought a uh, a lawsuit against their against Georgia's new voting law, SB 202. Now, the DOJ wrote their um, lawsuit kind of anticipating in a way that the Supreme Court might rule against um, uh, or rule in favor of, of the state of Arizona and uphold their voting restrictions. So it's kind of cleverly written. But Overall, we can just take one of the provisions that had been challenged in the Supreme Court decision in Arizona was the state was looking to throw out all provisional ballots that had been cast because a voter went to the wrong precinct in person. And so if we were to look at Georgia, the new law says that a voter cannot cast a ballot provisionally if they go to the wrong precinct before 5 p.m. And in the 2020 election, there were about 11,000 or 12,000 um, ballots that had been cast provisionally because voters had gone to the wrong precinct. Georgia, over the past decade or so, has closed hundreds of precincts, predominantly in low-income areas and in communities of color. So this ruling would you know, effectively uphold that small provision of SB 202 in Georgia. Now, if you look at the former uh, uh, President Biden's uh, margin, in Georgia, it was about the same as the provisional ballots that will now be discounted. So it'll both impact communities of color um, and uh, lower income communities while also clearly having somewhat of a partisan goal uh, on the part of the Republican legislatures uh, that have passed these.
Hmm. Well, we hear from Republican legislatures uh, trying to do this. They talk a lot about voter fraud, but really this is about the, the turnout and how this may impact the GOP in future elections, Nick? Yeah, at the you know preamble of, of almost all of these laws, there's two things uh, that the state legislatures have been saying. The first is that the goal here is to um, prevent and reduce fraud. Now, voter fraud is extremely, extremely rare in the United States, and it certainly has never happened on the scale that former President Trump continues to spread disinformation about and lie about. Um, so the the thought of preventing fraud in a fraudless election is you know, one of the justifications for these laws. And the second is this quote unquote, restoring of public confidence in elections. And that also harkens back to the big lie told by former President Trump and his allies about the 2020 election being rigged. And it's really eroded trust, at least among the Republican base, in the um, electoral systems that we have. Now, all of that said, uh, Justice Alito, in his opinion, wrote that you know states do have an interest in preventing and rooting out voter fraud. So simply showing a concern for voting fraud, at least according to Justice Alito in the um, in his opinion, could be justification for some of these new voting laws that are going to bring a bunch of restrictions and be borne disproportionately by communities of color. Mm. With uh, your reporting, do you anticipate a lot more red states moving forward with uh, making voting more restrictive now that this ruling has come down from the Supreme Court, Nick? Well, there's kind of two answers to that. Um, the first is this year uh, in the legislative calendar, we're a little past the halfway mark, I would say. Um, you know, Georgia's already passed the law, Florida, Iowa, Arkansas. Um, it, it, you know, there, there's a, about, I think, 14 different states have passed over 20 new laws that bring voting restrictions in. Texas is currently in a special session to try and get a new voting law passed. Um, new Hampshire is moving towards theirs. Michigan is working on a kind of uh, citizen petition workaround of a likely governor's veto there. So there's a few more coming. But if we look historically, um, when the Supreme Court has ruled on voting issues and in particular sided with uh, either against the Voting Rights Act or against voting rights expansion, what typically happens a few years after that is a big spike in new laws, either copycat laws or new efforts to kind of bring in restrictive voting. And the example that people cite is the um, decision in 2008 to uphold a new voter ID law in Indiana. Um, and it was a pretty strict, uh, specific voter ID law that the Supreme Court said was legal. Over the next three years, um, you know, I think about oh, it was more than 30 states then tried to pass their own version of voter ID laws. Um, some got knocked back in Texas and North Carolina as being overly restrictive. But we've seen this kind of pattern that following a major Supreme Court decision on voting rights, it often takes maybe a year or two, but there will be a, a, a yet another wave of voting les legislation, you know, with an eye towards what the Supreme Court just blessed. You had mentioned uh, the big lie just a couple of minutes ago, and we think about making voting more restrictive, but also this idea that these state legislatures will have more power over the elections process. Uh, when, we, when you uh, think about how the, the former president had asked these states to overturn uh, the results, uh, this is particularly alarming when you think about it that way, Nick? Yeah, going hand in hand with a lot of these new 
restrictions on voting that, you know, specific voters will feel as they try and cast their ballot either by mail or in person, um, is this kind of dramatic restructuring and uh, shifting of power over the, um, you know, running of elections and kind of who holds the authority and gets to implement elections. And so that comes with uh, partisan state legislatures exerting more power over the administration of elections. Um, In Georgia, we've seen uh, county election officials. These are the people who actually set the hours and the precinct locations and do the day-to-day kind of work to make an election happen. Um, We've seen some uh, Democrats and women of color being removed from county election boards. So when you look at the at the 2020 election and the former president's attempt to kind of subvert and overturn the election based on uh, you know false claims of, of voter fraud, there were a bunch of checks that kind of held against that effort. Um, whether it was in in Michigan, an official who refused to not certify the election, realizing that that had never been done before, or courts who stood up to legislatures trying to uh, appoint their own slate of electors to officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who simply said there was no fraud here and I'm not going to, you know, go, quote unquote, find votes in a conversation with the president. If the election were to be held again under these new laws, it's not to necessarily say that all those checks would break, but it would certainly add to the turmoil and, you know, possibly find a few states that do break. And that would just inject a whole nother level of uncertainty and, you know, kind of remove the nonpartisan faction of our of our electoral system. You've been hearing Nick Corisaniti again. He's a politics reporter for The New York Times. Nick, thank you for the context. We, re- we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Now, I really love talking to people who are doing important work and who are experts in their field, but there are also people who are making an impact in your community. It has nothing to do with their titles or expertise, and I want to hear about them. Whether it was in the pandemic or long before, how have they helped you? The people who make your community great. You can email me, lucy at ctpublic.org. Tell me about them, and in the months ahead, the person you nominate may be featured on the show. We'll be back tomorrow.